What's up, guys, and welcome back to Beyond the Void Horror Podcast. So we're here today for episode 117, and we're going to be talking about Piranha and Piranha 2, The Spawning. And we got a special guest with us, Nicholas East, who is a a good buddy that I met and also has donated uh, to the fucking podcast with his Zombie 3 poster that I have here over in the corner (laughs) and that I've neglected putting up yet. But I did take down the Friday the 13th for it, (laughs) so you should feel good, but welcome, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks, man. I... We've been filling in, as you guys know, with a lot of new people on the show. My ultimate goal is to have as many people as I can have on to enjoy horror with you guys. And uh, maybe some people stay. Maybe people, I don't know. It's This is always going to be morphing, so just bear with us. Uh, Brittany should be back next week, by the way, guys, for those of you who have been uh, wanting to hear. But, uh, but yeah, so uh, should we talk about maybe how, I guess we met through uh, our scene out here. But yeah. Not, uh, not really know each other until recently, right? Yeah. Um, so I ran across your podcast because a, a mutual friend of ours had suggested it to me and started listening. And then, yeah, we met because of the, the Silly Zombie 3 poster. <laughs> uh, you had talked about how you'd always wanted to hunt one down, and I had one literally collecting dust. And I am a firm believer in supporting art that you enjoy, especially art that you know people are making out of passion rather than out of finance because – that is the kind of feedback that they get. Well, and I appreciate you call it art. Oh. <laughs> Most people just think I'm farting in a microphone. Well, <laughs> not that I think it's art. I'm just saying. I, I have I have records in my music collection that my wife has accused of not being much more than that. So, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I just reached out to you to donate that to the cause, so you would know that people appreciated what you were doing, and uh, we we started talking over our mutual love of all things horror. Yeah, man, and Nick really is a, a big horror fan. We've Literally, we'll start a conversation that'll be like something small, and then we just spin out of control into like everything horror. Like, you know, you have one topic that you're interested in talking about, and then we just like, it just like goes into the next thing. So, but he's very passionate. I think you guys are going to enjoy hanging out. So, and I really love that poster. That is, (laughs) that is like, I made my fucking my year man oh. just, just that alone i'm like, so glad yeah seriously man like i it's just i was like what somebody's gonna give me a poster <laughs> and i didn't even know you listen first of all <laughs> I, it's you know i don't get to see everybody that listens so but i'm really happy to have you on man so well i'm i'm really excited to be here i'm really really happy to and it was funny that poster had sat on my wall for a decade and i'd stared at those that face going i know that goddamn face right <laughs> and it wasn't until i came over here and you showed me that picture of freddy krueger 
Well, and they got pictures of Absurd in this movie. Yeah. And uh, Freddy Krueger, and then uh, I forget what the other ones are, but uh, oh, and Force 5, the, the Fist. Yeah. I did a whole article on it. Surprisingly, that is the largest article on the website. Really? <laughs> yeah. So uh, that that is the biggest article we've ever put out. Like, wow. People have, people shared it from, like, I think uh, even Severin shared it. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's so, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, Severin knows who their fans are. Yeah, they're pretty good at their fans, I would say. Uh, speaking of which, we just had Thanksgiving here for a lot of people that celebrated. If you don't, whatever, you know. Uh, basically, we just uh, had a lot of food, a lot of Black Friday sales that I think me and Nick both jumped in. Oh, on. yeah. What did you do? Um, I, I grabbed uh, Vinegar Syndrome's new The Children Blu-ray, which right. I'm super excited about because... Uh, that that's a silly, silly, not good movie, but it scared <laughs> the piss out of me as a kid. If anyone's ever seen it, those black fingernails haunted me, even as a little goth boy, all throughout my youth. Uh, and uh, it's that morbid nostalgia, man. Oh yeah, nostalgia is a big thing for me, yeah. and I, I hate that fact. It doesn't speak well of my my place in the world as an adult, but it'll <laughs> grab me. And I'm definitely gonna. Um, Severin is releasing Sergio Martino's All the Colors of the Dark on right. Blu-ray, which if anyone is a Jalo fan and and especially a Sergio Martino fan, is definitely one of the more sort of psychedelic giallos that he made because a lot of his had a tendency to run towards the more police procedural kind of category, but this is the wild one. So okay. it's, I'm, I'm really imagining Severin is going to do a good cleanup job on that. I'm not the biggest uh, giallo fan, I guess, but uh, one of our writers, uh, um, Matthew Rogerson, yeah. he actually wrote, well, he used to go by Mark Doubt. He wrote like, I think it was like, four or five pieces yeah the history of the did Jalo. you read those yeah yeah, yeah. He, he started in the early days and he, he had a big speech uh, not speech but a big piece about edwidge french yeah and yeah and edwidge french is actually in all the colors of the dark it's one of the films that she's more well known for right yeah yeah so if you guys haven't seen that you should definitely check that out i personally picked up a ton of movies um you know i i love vinegar syndrome uh, but i felt like i spent more money that with them than anywhere else <laughs> i think i got like jack Frost on Blu-ray because I've been meaning to get that forever. It's just one of those stupid 90s movies that I just fucking love. And as an aside, Jack Frost was the first DVD I ever bought before I had a DVD player back really? when DVD started. Yeah. Dude, I had that shit on Laserdisc. Oh, my dad wow. got it. <laughs> I had to sell that, which broke my heart. But Oh, man. I picked up The Nest. We got Hereditary finally, but um, we had it on digital. Uh, the House on Tombstone Hill, uh, which is also known as Dead Dudes in the House. Body Melt, Demon Wind, Miami Connection, which, by the way, Draft House had like $5 fucking <laughs> Blu-rays. For everything that they, they sold on their site. I'll have to check that out because I've never been to their site. I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, so. it's not very many, but they had stuff like The Invitation. They had uh, The Visitor. They had Miami Connection and a few other films, but they were all five bucks a piece and nobody, I didn't even hear anything about it. So. And if anyone on here has not seen Miami Connection, yes. pause this and get yourself some fucking culture. That's some pretty funny <laughs> shit. I think it's on Prime. It, so. Well, there's a version on Prime that is the Rift Tracks version where the old MSC3K crew Right. Makes fun of it. I don't know if they've got a, an unmolested You version. might be right. I don't know. I know I saw it on Netflix years ago. Mm. So 
Um, I think, and the only other thing I got, I got the burning moon because fucking Jason Smith on last week's episode <laughs> mentioned it. And I was like, it was like $7 on oh, Severin. Wow. And I was like, all right, I'll, I'll pick up an Intervision film and like watch that. So I don't know what to expect, but we'll try to review that. And then I got Critters coming, the oh. collection on that, which was pretty pricey, by the way. But Christina bought it for me for Christmas. So that's cool. We got a big haul. <laughs> Critters is another nostalgia trip. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. Did you get anything else, or did you? Um, the only other thing I got was I picked up from um, the Vinegar Syndrome side. I got the uh, the old Paul Nashy movie, Count, Count Dracula's Great Love, just because I'm a huge Paul Nashy fan, and I'm trying to scoop up all the Blu-rays of his I, old work. I want those collections, the two volumes. Yeah, I've got volume two, and I got that one because it has The Hunchback of the Morgue, which oh. is, oh, I love that film. I haven't picked up one yet, just because I have all the films in one on DVD, so it, it would just be an upgrade. That's... I no some I know some of his films but I'm not well versed in them and, yeah. and I've I've been hesitant to get them because I just have no what I have no idea what to expect but if you speak well of that I they're very 70s Spanish well it kind of reminds me of like the style of like the blind dead oh yeah yeah well because Amando Diasario the guy who made the blind dead was right. was part of that world um Diasario and oh I I can't. I suddenly blanked on the director who did most of Nashi's films. Um, they they were all part of that seventies, very Spanish Euro horror world, right? Which and it has a lot of sort of fingers that feel similar to the Italian horror world, which is what most big horror buffs know as the Italian golden age. But the Spanish golden age happened as well, and Nashi was a huge part of that. He was an actor, a writer, a director, and I really don't think that Spanish horror of the late 60s through the early 80s would have existed in the form we know if that man hadn't been around. It's kind of like the uh, Corman. Oh, te- uh, yeah. totally. But but in front of the camera, and, and Nashi was willing to do anything, and... and uh, Hunchback of the Morgue, he famously, they set him on fire and covered him in angry rats. And he is on fire, covered in real rats. <laughs> the, the, the man was, he wasn't the world's greatest actor. He was kind of, he was a professional bodybuilder before he became an actor, but he was a bodybuilder in that old school kind of 50s in shape, out of shape guy way. Okay. Where yeah. he didn't look like Arnold. He was just bulky. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, I would love to get that at some point in time, but I'm broke and uh, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to get that anytime soon. But hopefully it'll still stick around because I know one thing that bothers me and when I buy these movies to get these movies before they run out mm-hmm. is like I always think of those movies that I got on VHS and said, oh, I'll just wait to get it on DVD. And then they never re-released it Yeah, uh, on VHS, on DVD, on uh, Blu-ray, on 4K, nothing. Yeah, And there's movies that have just, just gone away. Like, oh, be- yeah. Because these studios sit on them and they don't want to license them out. They don't want to bother with them. And they just sit in some storage room, like in some warehouse for fucking God knows how long. And then somebody like Vinegar Syndrome comes along and like is like, hey, it was a shitty movie, but we're going to put it out on Blu-ray. You know what I mean? Like the children. <laughs> yeah. I-, I never thought I would see a remastered version of the children. Uh, other than that, though, I think it might be that time. Horseshoes! All right, guys, so now we're going to do our horror shot. If you guys are new to this, that means that we basically made a alcoholic beverage that you can drink while you watch this movie or just drink because you love us and I spend time, ridiculous amounts of time for people to maybe not even drink it. 
<laughs> but I still like doing it. I think it's fun and creative, and I do take my time. So um, I offered a, a thing last time if someone uh, actually did the drink. So maybe we'll just keep in extending it until we see someone make the shot. And this is pretty simple ingredients, guys. Uh, we watched Piranha 1 and 2, and uh, I think this one kind of could be for both, but I'll probably just call it a Piranha shot. But basically, this shot is called a Chum Buddy. And what is in a Chum Buddy? Well... You're going to put in a fourth of Captain Morgan's white rum, three-fourths of a shot of Sambuca, and to make the blood that makes these piranha or piranha (laughs) 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 fucking hungry for fucking more, and it alerts all the other ones, you put two drops of red food coloring. Um, I was thinking about doing grenadine in it, but we didn't think that it would fall into there the right way grenadine's a little a little thin to go into a syrupy mix so we figured you know let's put in some food coloring just for the the water to be bloody like a piranha shot would be so this is a chum buddy uh if you're if you've never taken sambuca by the way it will make you a little bit more awake <laughs> than you are normally used to be uh it kind of reminds me of absinthe in some weird way we used to take it all the time back in the day guys when we did the episodes we would drink a couple of shots before we went live uh, but uh yeah so if you want to try a piranha shot or as we're calling it chum buddy all you got to do is go to longlivethevoid.com and check out our hashtag horror shot section now that's it for horror shots all right guys so now we're gonna go ahead and skip over the news this week again i apologize maybe we'll do some uh, extra stuff later on but we're gonna go ahead and jump into our flesh and potatoes of piranha and piranha 2 the spawning right now We're going to kick this off with uh, Piranha, the first one that I did the work on. This came out in 1978. The story is, when flesh-eating piranhas are accidentally released into a summer resort's rivers, the guests become their next meal. Uh, It was directed by none other than Joe Dante, who uh, has done many entertaining films, I would say, as well as many horror films. Um, There's Gremlins 1 and 2, The Howling, The Burbs, Explorers, Inner Space, and many, many more. I highly recommend you check out his films if you never have. It's also written and was taken over by John Sayles uh, for the screenplay, who has also worked on The Howling, Alligator, The Clan of the Cave Bear, The Spiderwick Chronicles. Piranha was his screenwriting debut, by the way. He was literally hired to rewrite the, the the story because Richard Robertson, who had originally written the story, a lot of people felt that it was a little too tongue-in-cheek and not really well-written. But the concept was cool, so they went in and had John Sayles and Dante uh, rewrite the whole fucking thing. So, Although he doesn't get credit for writing it. He was just sort of an idea man. Mm. Conceptual guy, I guess. It was also produced by none other than Roger Corman, who is finally getting a lot more credit these days uh, than normal. Um, I could go through a billion of his movies. The man, you couldn't watch a movie from 1970 to now and not trip over one of his movies. Let me just put it that way. Uh, There's even a, a fucking documentary on the guy. 
Oh, yeah. Roger Corman is an absolute cornerstone, both of independent cinema and horror cinema in America. Let's just get our, just jump in and get our shit done. <laughs> we pump them out, kind of like Cannon did a little bit. Oh, yeah. He was a no-take-two kind of guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he gave Jack Nicholson his first shot. So. Right. A lot of people, actually. A lot oh, of people yeah. in, uh, uh, I mean, Joe Dante is first start. Yeah. So. Um, the special effects for this movie were done by Rob Bowton. Uh, who worked on The Thing, Seven, Total Recall, Robocop, The Fog, Maniac, The Howling, and plenty more. This is one of his earliest films that he worked on, uh, as well as Phil Tippett, who typically does a lot of stop motion animation in movies. He's worked on Robocop 1 through 3. Obviously, there's a lot of st stop motion in that as well with the robot. Oh, yeah. Uh, he also did The Golden Child, the demon that was in that movie. He pretty much did pretty much a lot of stop motion film. And there's an interesting story. He's uh, the creature in this that he worked on was the tiny little fish man that we'll talk about a little bit more later. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the budget for the special effects on this was about 50000 So uh, they did pretty good job i think it wasn't a gore 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 movie but um some of the cast in this movie is bradford dillman who plays paul grogan the drunk guy uh the mountain drunk guy i guess yeah he was in quite a few clint eastwin action films like sudden impact the enforcer he was also in the swarm which christina just pulled out from the library for free uh he was also in a couple episodes of the thriller tv series back in the 70s a movie called bug from 75 and a bunch of murder she wrote episodes episodes about eight it also stars heather menzies she goes by heather menzies eric now as she's been married obviously yeah she plays maggie she was in the movie the sound of music which is pretty big she was in logan's run endangered species which i kind of want to check out it's like a bunk fucking close encounters movie hmm, i haven't heard of that one i haven't either i watched the trailer for it today and i'm like kind of interested she also actually passed away just this last december oh. of last year so also stars the legend Kevin McCarthy, who played uh, Dr. Hope. He was in the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 57. And the remake, he did a little cameo where he's running. He was also in UHF, weird movie called Fallen Angels, which was like a horror movie about satanic angels coming to kill hmm. people. Matinee, Murder, She Wrote as well, and Ghoulies 3. It also stars Dick Miller, the, the biggest actor in joe dante's catalog apparently uh he was in gremlins one and two as murray futterman the burbs the howling pretty much every joe dante movie that's ever been made <laughs> which uh joe don or uh, dick miller is pretty awesome i'm surprised he wasn't in more stuff to be honest because i like him as an actor i don't know why yeah i definitely he was a that guy as soon as i saw him i went that guy but i couldn't for the life of me remember and then as soon as you start rattling off the various dante films i was like oh the burbs oh yeah it also stars the legend barbara Steele. she plays dr mengers she was in black sunday obviously that was her biggest starring role i think pit in the pendulum as well castle of blood caged heat shivers dark shadows tv show and many more this film was supposed to have been shot around $770,000 to $660,000 in about 30 days they shot it, supposedly. But that number is a rough estimate. Some people say it's about a million. So the movie got mixed reviews when it came out, but it still pulled in $16 million at the box office domestically. So not too shabby. So what do you think, Nick? What, uh, what are your thoughts on this movie? 
I absolutely adore Piranha. Yeah. Ever since I was a kid and I saw it for the first time, part of it is my absolute love of creature features, but I also feel that Piranha is one of the most exceptionally handled creature features, especially of that era, given that it predates CGI and they didn't have both the ability to use CGI or the crux of having to use CGI. I, I think everything about it is fun. I love the fact that for the most part, they keep the story somewhat tight and they just move it along. But it's clear that they had larger ambitions, as I'm sure we'll talk about, because there's all kinds of conspiracies and governmental things going on that really don't go anywhere. <laughs> and I'm really not sure what the plan was for most of these people. But. You can tell that uh, this is Joe Dante's work with some of the camaraderie and stuff in it, too. Yeah, he always has a lighthearted touch to his horror. There's never there's never been a Joe Dante film I've seen where I felt that it was mean-spirited. He always was a very childlike love of monsters, and love of, right. of that kind of thing. And that's one of the reasons I've gravitated towards him. Although Howling was a a little sexual <laughs> howling was definitely a little sexual but it, it never crossed i felt into the mean territory but howling also interestingly while be, probably being his most famous film outside of gremlins mm -hmm. is also the least joe dante of the joe dante films it's true well and he also had to change the script because it, him and the original writer of the howling oh I'd... are not too big of fans of each other <laughs> Oh, I remember you talking about yeah. that when you reviewed the Howling series. <laughs> anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no. Um, yeah, I overall, I, I absolutely loved the film. If you are into people getting eaten, that's one of the ways that this film really comes together because we get to see large amounts of people getting eaten, which is fun. But <laughs> it, it tends to be smaller. There's not as, as large a set piece kind of uh, experimentation that you would see in, say, the AHA version of, of Piranha. Right. Um, I think this film does a great job for a low-budget creature feature of giving us characters that we can root for and kind of get behind because I never found myself hating any of the main characters. And oftentimes, uh, these kind of movies, people are created for the simple purpose of having them get eaten. Sure. And this movie gets around that by having most of the people that get eaten be children, which is <laughs> something I had kind of forgotten about before yeah. I rewatched the movie. Almost everyone who gets munched is a little kid. Yeah, and that's probably why they did it in a mountain town. I don't know. Like There are so many shots where someone will say something and then they'll be afraid of the piranhas and will immediately crash cut to just little chubby kid legs in the water. <laughs> and it made me laugh every time. Getting pecked at. <laughs> Yes. And even before the pecking, just films of little, little legs in the water. And maybe it's the 70s things, but did kids not wear pants in the 70s? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I remember there was an inordinate amount of short shorts yes, for kids. I, very short. I, I even have some old pictures when I was a kid in the late 70s or probably early 80s that were like, like up to my fucking crotch pretty yeah. much like what the fuck i had some of those as a kid too <laughs> well for me i mean i just think this is just silly nonsensical fun in a lot of ways i mean the the, the premise is kind of silly yeah uh it's a little out there but i'm i'm sure it's a lot better than what the original script told which i think they said that it was something to do with like bears chasing him into the water Oh, wow. And it was real loose. You could tell that, you know, Joe Dante wanted his own sort of Jaws film uh, with a bunch of uh, entertainment thrown in, as he even includes the video game in the movie as sort of a nod as well. I noticed that. I noticed that. So the movie is, you know, definitely falls short of Jaws, but it still scared me as a kid. 
you know, wanting to go in the water too. Cause you know, I, the fear I had of a kid as mm-hmm. a kid in the water, even if it was a lake or a fucking the ocean or something like that, something brushing up against my fucking leg would fucking petrify me. And I immediately thought of piranha. Oh yeah. Even as an adult going to a lake now, if a fish touches me, I freak and shriek. And I know that films like Piranha. Crabs, whatever the fuck it may be. Jesus <laughs> Christ. But yeah. I, I do think that Piranha was probably, or hands down, the best of the Jaws ripoff films. Yes. By any stretch of the imagination. A lot of people feel that way, yeah. It, it paid massive homage to Jaws. Even the very opening scene is, is a fun gender reversal of Jaws because we essentially play out like that opening scene where the young girl is in the water. But in this point it's the the young woman who shoves her boyfriend into the water and we see him suddenly get thrashed about and she's the one going honey where are you and, so. and even in the second one i feel like it has a a, a jaws leaning oh definitely because like definitely. the whole story is almost exactly the same <laughs> i i felt that the second film um is by far structurally more of a ripoff of Jaws yeah. than the first one was. The first one obviously owes owes a debt to Jaws, but it wasn't taking all of its beats no. like the second one was. It was more of like, hey, it's around this time. It was intentionally trying to bite off of that, uh, pun intended, <laughs> uh, of that fame. Um, but, you know, I mean, the movie just makes me laugh. You know, watch all those fish eat people to the sound of whatever that was, uh, which we'll talk about later. When they were eating is kind of cool. It's real iconic, I guess, because you knew it was coming. And it was just it built this tension. Watching them peck at the kids and people in general was pretty funny. You know, the story is pretty bananas, but, you know, they had to bring the fish to the damn mountain town somehow. (laughs) And it's not even plausible that they would piranhas would be in those waters anyway. So it's going to be a little bit of a stretch for any any story to have that happen but great setup for me it's a lot of horror fun there's also chock full of horror tropes in this movie by the way and the jokes as well so you know like leaving the keys in the car yeah they got uh, the hero is a drunk you know so nobody believes him kind of thing yeah they got the female male struggle dynamic jokes you know that uh you know power dynamics i guess um but you know the woman in this movie is actually very handy she gets shit done the fat guy behind being all bumbly people in charge not heeding any warnings about safety innocent people falling victim to those same fucking assholes <laughs> pretty pretty silly you know to the the mistakes of the scientists of course uh, it was a different time then, I think. So, but uh, yeah, I, I really I enjoyed watching this movie. I remember watching it as a kid, thinking to myself, I I don't I didn't remember all the specifics about it. I just remember being it scaring me as a kid. Yeah, and I think they had like an edited version on TV a lot of the times, part one and two. Plus, I remember my dad having it on beta and <laughs> the second one on beta too. So. But uh, yeah, I I enjoyed it. I I think it was fun to watch these again. In fact, so much that I ended up watching the remake as well after we done. I was done watching this, like literally three movies in a row. I was like, bam, bam, bam. And I would have watched the fourth one, but I couldn't find it online. So I just decided to watch something else. So there is some pretty interesting trivia on this. Now, this is going to be kind of in a spoiler category somewhat. uh, And then we'll talk about some of our spoiler sections. But I think if you guys have never watched these, this film, you should really check it out. It's it's on Prime. You can watch it for whatever you pay your Prime subscription to Amazon on, which most people have. Uh, you could rent it at the very least for like two ninety nine. Yep. You don't even need to watch it in Blu-ray quality, but why not? Joe Dante started in cutting trailers for Roger Corman. Yeah. 
his first job that he got was cutting caged heat, uh, which he did a horrible job at. But Corman said, you're going to want to take this in on time, kid, if you want to keep a job, if you want to keep this job. But Corman took him under his wing and really taught him a lot. And they re-edited the, the caged heat video uh, trailer and uh, he started giving him more and more work. So he became the trailer guy. Then he moved on to like, you know, assisting direction and, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of people under Corman's wings fucking got to fame. And a lot of people think that he exploited a lot of the people that, that he made work for them. But really in the end, all of these directors and actors and all this shit made a fucking career out of it. And in a way kind of ripped off Corman is what Joe Dante said. I would I would agree with that because we tend to almost never hear Corman's name mentioned outside of the discussions either of sort of 60s American horror because he did get some respect with the uh, the uh, various Edgar Allan Poe films he made with uh, with uh, Price back in the 50s and the 60s but outside of that we don't talk about him much and he was such a power player both as a filmmaker but more importantly I think as a producer because of all the people who starts he gave people like Jack Nicholson got his start with Corman uh, James Cameron who we're going to talk about later got his start with Corman right and uh, yeah I mean he was he was like the world's greatest film school for young filmmakers in that era he knew how he knew how to find passionate people by putting them under a lot of pressure I think and if they were hungry enough and they wanted to fucking, you know, be a part of this, he made them work for it. And oh, I, yeah. And I think in the end, it all paid off because the ones that stuck around, you know, those are the ones that ended up making movies like Joe Dante. Yeah, I think, and this is going to sound silly to say, I think The Asylum is probably as close to like a Corman studio as we have today, where <laughs> young filmmakers just get to make movies, even if they're not making even Corman-level movies. Right, yeah. I mean, a lot of people thought he was kind of a dickhead, and he's and and in like outside that didn't know him. Mm. But I think a lot, and, and he did make people work hard. So. I imagine. I mean, but I don't know. You could take it for what you will. Those people became successful because of him, regardless of what you think of the man. So um, apparently when this movie was made, by the way, Piranha, uh, Universal Studios, who made Jaws, mm -hmm. attempted to sue New World for spoofing Jaws. However, Steven Spielberg saw the movie in advance and loved it. After that, Universal pretty much just dropped the lawsuit. Yeah, I'd heard that. I'd heard Joe Dante tell a story where he was told Steven Spielberg wanted to talk to him, and he was he was terrified that Spielberg was going to tell him to his face he was going to sue him, and instead he found out Spielberg liked his work and, of course, gave him the opportunity to make Gremlins as a result. Yeah, no, it definitely is. Actually, I think he just, even Spielberg himself said that this is the best Jaws ripoff ever made. As a matter of fact, so. it's far superior to any Jaws sequel. They ended well, and they ended up working together later on on Twilight Zone the movie. So, oh yeah, I forgot about that. And of course, uh, Kevin McCarthy was in Twilight Zone the movie too. That's the film that as soon as I saw him in Prawn, I was like, oh, Twilight Zone. Yeah, it's true. I forgot about that too. Because yeah. that that segment of the Twilight Zone movie scared the pants off me when I was a kid with the. The, the little kid who was like a god. Yeah, that is a good one. That is my favorite. One of my favorite shorts uh, that I've seen in a horror movie because it was so creative. Oh, yeah. And it it managed to be Looney Tunes-esque, but to be absolutely dark as all get out. It's, Terrifying, It yeah. felt like its tongue was nowhere near its cheek. And for a piece that essentially physicalized cartoonity like that, yeah. that was a, a very odd tightrope to walk, and they managed it quite It's kind of like a reverse cool world, almost. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Also, uh, the film had some, you know, a lot of production problems, I guess, when they were making it. A lot of last minute cast changes. They had problems with their uh, underwater cameras that they kept breaking. Uh, so they had some union problems. They had unusable second unit footage oh, that no. they were using. Uh, so it's, it still became New World's biggest uh, hit. You know, one of their biggest hits that they ever made back then. So um, I don't know if you know how they <laughs> did some of the piranha. Like, I, I kind of did a little digging on it because it looked like they taped fish to a piece of clear plastic. They were clearly all going in unison right. in those underwater shots. Yeah. So I, I felt like they were, like, glued to it. They also did it with sticks, I heard, that mm. they where they were, like, biting them and stuff like yeah. that. So they were just pushing it on them. <laughs> Yeah, most of the actual attack footage, especially the underwater footage, it looks like they, they had about four or five good shots that they kind of would recycle every time there was an attack. Um, I think that the silliness of the piranhas works because usually if you take silliness and stack it on silliness, you end up with a problem. But when they added that piranha sound on top of it, right. it made it almost more endearing than scary but it makes it work in a way that i think if they'd tried to go full frightening it wouldn't have worked but the little sounds they made just oh they kill it for me every time supposedly now joe dante has talked about this he did it in the uh, extras of a 2004 release Mm. a dvd of piranha where he talked about that that was a dentist tool that he used (laughs) to make that sound and they're not sure they never really uh this was this is old news but um I, I could try to look it up a little bit, but I couldn't find any. And I don't have the Blu-ray of Piranha, so yeah. I have no idea. Uh, but, yeah, apparently some people think that he did it over the water, just kind of like brushing the water mm. to make that sound, or under the water. So nobody's really 100% sure. But they definitely used a dentist drill to make that sound. Well, it's quite apropos. So. <laughs> it's very unique, too. I thought it was great. Like, I, I think it works really well with it. So Well, it gives, I mean, because unlike in, say, like the AHA remake, the Piranhas in this film don't work as characters. Like, you don't see them that much. They're more of a threat and a force than they are, like, something you would think of in a character way. Right. But that sound, almost like the theme in Jaws, gives them a character because you hear it and you know they're there. So it makes the effects omnipresent even when they're not on screen. Right. And I think that they definitely found a way to get a good bang for their buck by having that stand in for the visual effects they maybe couldn't always afford. 100%. I like. I, I thought it was cool, man. I don't know. I just... I, I And then they even carry it over into the second one too, like flawlessly. It's the same sound. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm going to talk about the sounds in the second one because the bird chirping was, was driving me bananas. <laughs> uh, and I, yeah, I when I think of the piranha attacks in this movie, I'm sure part of it was budget but I love the fact that unlike a lot of other piranha-esque movies you very rarely see the piranhas really just eating someone's flesh as far as like diving into their chest, ripping their guts apart what you see are fingers and toes and that is something that I think we can connect to because I've never been attacked by an animal, but I've had shit nip on my toes. Yeah. And that, I think, as silly as it is, it adds something to it. Because every time I see it, I can watch people get eviscerated and chuckle. But I saw those piranhas nipping on the toes and I was just, oh, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, uh, you know, the, the special effects in this were actually supposed to be done by Rick Baker. Originally. Really? Originally. Um, but he recommended 17-year-old Rob Boatson mm. 
to do it and he did and he did really well i guess you know for the times anyway so and and he went on to obviously do a lot of fucking work in the fucking industry uh stuff i would be more than proud of to be a part of there was also a novelization of this movie by the way that was common back then yeah yeah it was like a i guess the story went a little bit deeper some people died like the girl died maggie died in the, the book um but not in this movie, obviously. Yeah. Uh, they also had, like, I think it was a male uh, counterpart where Barbara Steele actually played uh, the doctor was supposed to be male, oh. but they had her play the the um, the doctor instead so they could have, you know, Barbara Steele, Barbara Steele in the yeah. fucking movie. So D- Joe Dante talked about that a little bit, too. Did you notice they released a novelization of the 2018 Halloween Yes, and a lot of people have been claiming it as really good, too. That's what I've heard, and I'm curious if they did that just to try and be throwback, because that's, you know, you, I haven't seen a novelization of a film in years, because now that films are so much more prevalent, they're not necessary. Yeah. I used to buy novelizations as a kid, because the first book book I ever read as a child was the novelization of Aliens, and... um I had it because I'd seen Aliens in the theater, and that was the last time I could ever see it, it seemed, so I read the book, right. <laughs> because that was the only way to rewatch the movie. Right, yeah, There's there, it's weird, like, and, and, and you know, novelizations are popular, but not, like, really popular, so I wonder how well it did, I wonder if it sold a lot. I'm, I'm curious, it has to be a nostalgia thing, because I remember novelizations, I, I know, okay, I can't say they were looked down on broadly, but when I was a kid, my parents both were really big readers, and they encouraged me to read, and they you know, would tell me, no, read a book, not a writing of a film. They didn't consider novelizations right. books. So <laughs> I grew up kind of looking at them as like, not quite a comic book, but not quite a novel, somewhere in between intellectually. Yeah, it definitely goes, they definitely go a little bit deeper. I don't know if I would want to read the 2018 Halloween, not just because I wasn't that big of a fan of the movie, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I was tempted to read it just just because I was I was tickled that they did it. Right. I was tickled yeah. that they did it. I think it's fun. I th- and, you know, we have a lot of comics of that stuff. So I'm sure there'll be some comic books coming out of that, too, as well. Oh, considering how much money that flick pulled in. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're going to, yeah. For better or worse, we'll say. Um, one thing I did want to also mention is that the little tiny fish man that I brought up, mm-hmm. that they did the stop motion for, that was supposed to get a 50-foot tall creature at the end of the movie like they really wanted to have that mm. but they didn't have the budget like joe dante said that he wanted it to like terrorize people in the fucking touted shit at the end of the movie so he was to play a bigger part in fact that because they didn't have the budget they didn't do that and they also had we're gonna have a scene where the little fish creature came back later and got run over by the car like mm. a car driving down the road uh, in place of that. But they ended up just using the beginning part where he's like kind of wandering around, peeking around shit yeah. in the doctor's uh, scientific lab or whatever. I had a feeling that there had to be a story like that behind it because it was such an awesome effect. And I'm a sucker for stop motion animation. Sure. It ha- it's really hard for me to ever feel connected to something I can tell as CGI. But you never mistake stop motion for being real, but it still feels tangible in a way. And maybe yeah. it's just because I grew up watching Jason and the Argonauts Sure, yes. Stuff like that. But that scene tickled me so much, and it felt like such a dropped story thread. Everyone talks about the piranhas, and yeah, the piranhas are, you know, they're vicious, they're eating people. But there's a fucking monster in there no one's talking about. (laughs) I could believe some people got eaten by some crazy fish, but if I saw a monster bipedally moseying around, that would shatter my worldview. Joe Dante was saying that he was like, a lot of people had problems with, they were like, why the fuck is this in here? Like, you know, not 
I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. So they're like, why is this in here? Like nobody really understood. And he said that that was it was important because that's the the to let people know what kind of movie this is. It was never supposed to be a man like nature against mankind kind of movie. It was supposed to be a sci-fi film. Ah, okay. Like that that's what that in his mind it ended up being more of a nature versus man piranhas and stuff. But it's really the the ultimate story is about science against mankind in a way. And he said that even a lot of Roger Corman's work, production wise and story wise, is a little bit more left leaning uh, in uh, storytelling than you would normally have. So because it was the you know the government, uh, like they even have the the military's kind of like a theme in that as well. Well, they they essentially lay out you know why these crazy piranhas were made as something that they were going to use against the Vietnamese in, or the Viet Cong, I should right. say, in the Vietnam War and you know you taking some sort of biomilitary weapon and then having it turn on what couldn't be more of an americana slice of society right, yeah. is very much a leftist view yeah. to take it definitely is one of those things that that he wanted to kind of bring to light a little bit um but you know it i think you know the sci-fi element of it got a little lost i mean I until see- the second one i would say <laughs> yeah and, and even the second one i felt has the ability to have a broader sci-fi theme than it did but uh, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll get we'll get into that of course right I I think too the fact that obviously this movie is taking place um, several years after you know the the true end of the Vietnam War but the idea is that these sort of stains from that era are still with us because there's no reason for the piranha to still existed this long after the war but in the film for no reason whatsoever we're still holding on to this ugliness right which does eventually come out and raise havoc and i think that that fact in and of itself is a statement you know not just we design these for war but we design this for a specific purpose that purpose has long come and gone but we're still holding on to it just because right we always talk about you know all these reviewers all these people horror historians horror historians (laughs) uh they basically always talk about like you know when you know politics and what's happening in the world always affect what horror uh, the outcome of horror, what what horror is. So I think, you know, in some small way, I think this is a part of what, uh, 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 even though it wasn't really stated that much in this movie yeah. or even in the second one, it is a is a product of that. So last thing I want to mention, Peter Fonda was originally picked to do Grogan, the drunk guy. Oh, wow. That would have been neat. He was supposed to do that, but he didn't want to do it unless the, the special effects were really good. Mm. And because the people who were working on him weren't really well known, he kind of just fell out. So they got Dillman, who also had issue with some of the writing. <laughs> so they helped to kind of rewrite it a little bit because the character was so plain and he was a better actor than that. So they rewrote his character a little bit to kind of fit uh, some depth to the character more than than he had, mm. which, to be honest, it's still kind of lacking in that department. But the whole the whole story is between him and Maggie. Yeah. And they kind of go back and forth. And there's some really funny shit we're going to talk about here just now. We're going to get into our spoiler scenes now, guys. Is there anything that you want to bring in? I, I, I did love kind of going back to what I'd said at the beginning about the the film starts off right away, paying immediate homage to Jaws, but with that kind of gender reversal. And then as soon as we pick up 
the main thread of the story, we meet Maggie in that airport and she says one of my favorite things ever when her boss is questioning if she could do the job. She goes, well, I found the bigamist just out of nowhere. And I loved that line. <laughs> but right off the get go, even though she is she is played as a slightly flighty character in some ways, it's still her story. And we are once again kind of gender reversing a little bit. There's a love scene and she's the sexual aggressor. Right. And all the things that happen, he's the one that's sort of dragging behind. She's the decision maker she's the one with agency and you really didn't see that in 1978 and yeah. i i was really impressed with that you could argue that she's still kind of a silly character but i don't think we give the notion of agency enough credit yeah. the fact that her decisions were still hers to make she wasn't living someone else's life and that was very very powerful for a kind of schlocky low budget film but it still did it in a way where it never spoke down to any portion of the audience and that right way. i really appreciate it she that. walked right into his house like mountain guys oh, rogan's yeah. house i was like damn dude you're just walking into some dude's house in the middle <laughs> of the mountains that's got to be bad news bears but yeah it's pretty funny their their dynamic together i thought that was pretty interesting because they kind of like they shift the power every now and then like it's they interesting do. which which makes them feel because I, I i think it's good that they skipped over it's implied that they became not a couple but it's implied that they were intimate together but after that you do feel a back and forth with them where they feel like equal partners whereas you said right. power dynamic shift yeah um, and that's how it really works and would really work especially if you were confronted with such an ugly situation yeah the one thing i question about this movie is why is it that people think it's okay to jump into water in the middle of nowhere, like military bases, like in the beginning. That was yeah. like, who the fuck would jump? Oh, oh, this is some military base. We should go swimming. <laughs> no, <laughs> that was that was a bit banana. My, my question wasn't because I could see some teenagers doing that. What I couldn't see is who didn't lock the military base. That's what I wanted to know. <laughs> who who didn't put something a little more powerful than a than something I would lock my bicycle up with. On yeah. your monster facility. Yeah, your piranha fucking facility. Jesus <laughs> Christ. Uh, yeah, and, and you wouldn't notice that the fucking fence, you wouldn't go around the perimeter of the fence at some point in time to make sure people didn't get in there? Well, and they knew people were getting <laughs> in because right from the opening scene, you know, the, the couple gets eaten right away. Not much of a spoiler, five yeah, minutes no. in. But then you see the door open outside somewhere and you see um, the, the doctor looking out there. You can't tell who it is at the time, but you know someone is aware. Then when we finally come back to the facility a little bit later, he's, of course, still there and all crazy old man scientist stuff. But he hasn't locked up a damn thing since he knew the piranhas ate some people. <laughs> he had to expect someone was going to come looking for those kids. <laughs> they also, another thing they did in the movie involving water that I would never do at a military base is drink from it. <laughs> what the fuck? He's like, mm, let me try out this uh, water that's just pouring out of some spigot. Like, it wasn't even a spigot. It was just like a fucking large pipe. And he's just like, yeah, the water tastes salty. And I'm like, why are you drinking that? <laughs> First of all. <laughs> yeah, but that guy didn't seem to be too concerned about his own safety generally. He was drunk. Yeah, yeah he was. He was. He was drinking. Uh, they never said what it was. I'm assuming rum or something out of a canteen the whole film. He never stopped drinking. <laughs> he started saying he wasn't drunk, but he still had the goddamn canteen on him. The whole time. It's fucking liquid courage, you mother. Fuckers. I'm fighting piranha, you piece of shit. I love it when he hands the canteen to the girl and she's got to take a swig and he just says, It's not water. You know, that ain't water. <laughs> 
His character is really weird. His hair was really weird too for some reason. I don't know. I felt like he needed like a red handkerchief around his neck. Didn't he have that at one point in time? He did. He did. He did. Well, I mean, he was I wasn't sure. It I got the impression that he was supposed to be a sort of mountainy off the grid kind of character. Right. But he wasn't quite able to pull it off, so he ends up becoming more whiny than <laughs> than than you would picture an off the grid mountain man being. Yeah. I, I, I picture less bitching and moaning when I picture my dudes who live from the soil. He's kind of uh, more suburban in a weird with an accent, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. This did you remember what the name of the um operation was that they yes yeah. it was operation razor teeth i put it in <laughs> bold in my notes because i thought that is awesome and if we ever discover that there is an operation razor teeth even if it's something benign i want it shut down <laughs> what he's referring to is what he was saying the operation of the vietnamese war when they were trying to fucking pollute this the water supply and food to win the war which is funny now that you say it that way i hadn't quite thought of it but that's actually not too dissimilar from what really happened because oh, yeah. that's what agent orange was it was meant to deforest um whole sections of vietnam and the piranhas in the film what they say is it's meant to essentially eat everything in the rivers it's a liquid version of deforestation so right. not dissimilar from what we did or what happened because agent orange of course made a lot of our people really sick yeah no that i mean that is a real thing they try to fucking attack the food and water supply a lot of times so i mean it makes sense yeah although the 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 science element of this is a little far-fetched like <laughs> that they're creating these like aggressive piranha that like can withstand cold temperature and uh, i don't know it seems a little weird <laughs> yeah they, they tried to kill castro with an exploding cigar so you never know <laughs> <laughs> that's true uh there is this part in the movie where they count down from a hundred uh he's like count to a hundred and, and i'm gonna tie this around me and if you don't if you don't pull it and i'm literally counting the whole time oh no because i i, I that always throws me off when you ever see those movies in the 90s especially that they would do the time countdown and it would be like oh you got a minute and a half and then it's like 10 minutes in yeah. and you're <laughs> like wait what and they're all 45 <laughs> 44 yeah, i know like whoa uh, I guess you could kind of uh, chalk that up to like you know different things happening simultaneously. Yeah, but... we're, we're seeing we're seeing multiple perspectives but mushed together. In this movie, they actually did a pretty good job. Apparently, originally Maggie was supposed to count to three hundred instead of one hundred mm. in the script, but. That's more like a pearl diver. That's an absurd... Even the time that he was down there, even if it weren't for the fish, I kept thinking, that guy's holding his breath for a long time. Right, yeah, but he's a mountain man. He's a Yeah, but he's also drunk. So. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Yeah, like, so this drunk guy gets in the water. <laughs> I mean, and not, he's not just holding his breath. He's maneuvering. He's struggling. He's, uh, he's under uh, spoiler pressure. Um, <laughs> you hear that, kids? If you drink, you can swim. Yes. <laughs> And if you drink enough, you can swim forever. Don't do that. You will never come up. It's Yeah, that's a bad idea, being drunk underwater. Like, Jesus Christ, that just seems like a really bad idea. <laughs> I mean, go swimming, have fun in your pool, but don't go under fucking water. And, and what, why was that whole fucking basin underwater anyway? I think that had something to do with, they kept talking about they were going to open that dam that was going to essentially bring water in, and that's how uh. the piranhas were going to get everywhere. So I, I gathered that that was somehow the cause. Okay. 
We're going to pick a few of our scenes that we want to talk about that we enjoyed or stood out. or It doesn't always necessarily mean that we enjoyed them, but just something notable that we wanted to bring up uh, that really stood out. Did you have one in particular right off the bat? Uh, yeah. So this movie, I, I had a hard time at first thinking about my favorite scenes because I kind of think more set pieces. Okay. That's not what this movie had, but it has tons and tons of shots that I absolutely adored. Okay, that's uh, cool. Uh, I, as I mentioned, you know, the reuse over and over again of the little toes getting bitten absolutely tickled me every time and i loved the constant shots of the little children's chubby legs in peril those drove me those made me chuckle you're sick uh, yes you're i can't fucking sick fuck Nick. i kept watching the movie going they couldn't have made this movie today because this is not look kosher but i think i think the scene outside of the um the stop motion animation monster which i just adored that i loved was the the doctor the kevin mccarthy character when they're going down the river and they're going to try and make it in and they find the young boy stranded on the boat which was a great scene to begin with well let's tell that scene before we get into that real quick because i i have that as one of my favorites and then we'll jump back into yours all right so if what he's talking about guys there's a scene where there's a kid with his father in a boat on the fucking river <laughs> and he I forget what he does but he falls in and then the kid it, like he he reaches his hand in and it chews on his hand yeah pulls the the fucking dad in the kid's like struggling to get out of the water yeah and and the 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 canoe capsizes his dad gets shredded to shit and the fucking boy on the canoe kind of like just sits there and he and he's laying unscathed he's just terrified because he just watched his dad get eaten and it's clear that the canoe is is on its way down so he can't stay there forever right so he's sitting on top of the on the bottom of the canoe technically because it's capsized yeah and he's just waiting for help going down the river and that's when we get to your part where the uh, McCarthy's character Doctor Hoke yeah so Dr. Hoke has been absolutely, you know, he, he he freaks out when he sees, you know, the the when he sees Maggie even put her fingers in the water. He's like, don't go in the water. Don't go anywhere near the water. Don't put your hand in the water. Yeah. <laughs> and then they get and they, then they see the kid obviously in distress in the distance. So they car, they keep rowing their way towards him. And they're really almost there. They're maybe 10 yards away. The kid's not about to die. But <laughs> Hoke suddenly decides that the only way to save the kid is to give himself up. And right. Dr. Dives into the piranha-infested water, swimming not even faster than the rowing, it seemed, just slightly ahead. Dude, he was really far away, too, which made no sense to me. Like, why would you... Like, you're... Yeah, that doesn't make any fucking sense. And I, did, I think the only reason they did it is because they probably couldn't afford any more Kevin McCarthy in the movie. That was my thought process. But they, they go over there, and then he's trying to help the kid, and I couldn't figure out how he was going to help the kid from the water. And it seemed that all he really did... Yeah, he kind of helps push the kid over to the boat. <laughs> It's but ridiculous. what he was really doing was letting the piranhas eat him while it happened. Yeah, so. <laughs> it, it it pretty much is, and that's the thing. It's like they were going to get there. Why didn't you just wait? Like I know they were trying to make this. I just don't think they pulled it off as as well as they no. imagined. Uh, because you could see him. He's like he's just like in the water. The kid's in the water as he's kind of like pushing him over and getting eaten. And it, it, but it's funny because the kid was fine. Yeah, the kid hadn't been killed. The kid wasn't. I mean, the kid obviously was in peril. But like, th- what the fuck are you thinking, Kevin McCarthy? <laughs> You've been through fucking body snatchers. You know this jig is up. Come on, man. And if he hadn't been so concerned with his own well-being for the earlier part of the movie to suddenly just throw it all away for some rando kid. that You know what's funny, too? They're in that scene um, when Kevin McCarthy's 
character Dr. Hoke is swimming over to the canoe from mm-hmm. really far away, <laughs> uh, which is the stupidest idea. I just can't get over that. That part bugged me a little bit. But it's funny, you know, you expect it from these kind of movies. But the boy on the canoe originally didn't emerge unscathed like he does in the film. Mm. He apparently was going to suffer, like, uh, apparently they say severe lacerations on his arms. But this doesn't appear in the film. Um, he is, however, in a state of shock because his father, which is why he keeps calling Daddy. Yeah. Remember, he kept saying Daddy, and I'm like, wait, is Kevin McCarthy his father? Ah, uh, no, I, I... And I was like, is that some other guy he was just fishing with? Like, you know, like some random dude? <laughs> I, I assumed that, that he was that he was kind of in a state of, I just saw my dad get eaten. And once again, I, I felt like that played really... It wasn't apparent, obviously, but in Jaws, I felt like that was kind of playing on the scene where uh, Brody's kids witnessed the guy in the kayak or whatever it is get eaten, the famous shot of his leg. Right, okay. And the kids are clearly in shock from that, and I felt like it was kind of playing towards that scene from Jaws. Since- I, th- I think that's... Well, yeah, because they... Well, there's that scene where um, the old man's got his feet dangling off the pier with his yeah. dog, and they... Ch- <laughs> Dude, that part... I wish I would have seen his feet and getting eaten. I know. Yeah. But, like, it's still cool. Like, you, they, they show up on the shore, and they see this blood stain all the way up to his dead body, and you see his leg... <laughs> His comical <laughs> legs, like I'll chewed the fuck. <laughs> I thought it was funny though. My favorite part of that scene, as much as I love just chews la- his chewed legs, is that our main character, his first instinct is he said, "Let me get a shovel." He wouldn't want to be buried in yeah, town. It's a, that's a theme in old movies. I noticed, like they don't even call the cops; they just bury him. Yeah, like that's like a no no these days. You don't touch that shit because you don't want to get blamed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't. I mean, I get that they were friends, and he's trying to honor his buddy's wish, but. Yeah, like, slow your roll, bro. Like, slow your roll. (laughs) Anyone out there in the world that knows me, if you ever find my corpse, don't just grab a shovel. Call someone. Yeah. (laughs) Let them know. It is kind of weird. So it's just like I guess at times the times that it was. Well, these these were these were people that were way more salt of the earth than I could ever hope to be. (laughs) (laughs) Because they're going to dig them back up anyway. Like, what the fuck? Um, anyway, do you have another scene that you want to bring up? Another scene that I absolutely adored was it, it's once again not a set piece so much as a shot. Okay, but when the, when the piranhas finally attack all the kids, I did love the prana flying on that obnoxious camp counselor's face. That was really good. Oh yeah, but I love that you see two or three young girls who are all in inner tubes, and you see them trying to lift their butts out of the water, <laughs> screaming, just trying to keep their heinies above. And then one young girl, way younger than you would expect in a scene like this then just gets shroomped down through the inner tube yeah and i i, I don't know why. it was the counselors right I, I can't remember if it was a kid or a counselor but i remember a, i remember there was one young it girl. was a counselor because okay. the young girl was the daughter of grogan well there was other young girls too because the, the daughter of grogan didn't yeah she she was a questionable one we'll get to her yeah um i i was questioning her the whole film because the whole well, part of the film is this young girl is very afraid of the water we time and time again we see counselors trying to get her to go swim and be part of the team but she's just generally afraid of the water doesn't like she's go like knows that there's danger yeah there's almost something some some sort of precognition there but then finally at the end of the film the attack begins and kids are getting mauled and then we cut to her for whatever reason deciding to grow a spine and trying to get in the water she she's dragging this giant boat to the shore while the attack is going on completely oblivious then decides the boat's too heavy and decides to get on an inflatable raft she spends a long time with that by the way but you know what you're doubt you're downing her overwhelming good nature to just 
step into action. And she was she was she's a hero. She she was well. You could tell she, you could tell they were making her more heroic because for some reason in the last part of the film they gave her a full makeup job. She was the only child on that beach that had like ruby red lips and blush. It was bananas. <laughs> she's like an eight year old. Well, she watches. I, I do believe it's the counselor that goes through the middle of the inner tube because ah. she gets one of the counselors in the boat, but the other one slips through mm-hmm. and she gets pulled down, and then the like the girl sees her get shredded to shit, and <laughs> which is pretty fucking funny uh even in the the remake they pull people's bodies on the fucking boats <laughs> that are just shredded and just dead. legs like they have, no <laughs> they have no face and they're like they just realize when they put them down on the on the on the boat deck that they're not alive <laughs> I, I think I think the great scene of, of the old prospector looking guy when you see his legs, I think they tried to, to do that the way everyone wanted it to play in the AHA remake when Jerry O'Connell gets pulled onto the boat and he's nothing but like a skeletal bottom half. It kind of reminds me of uh, Dead Alive as well. Or oh, totally. Or Brain Dead where the guy's legs are kicking. Mm-hmm. But they don't move in this movie, but... Uh, there's two things that I want to mention that it was really funny, like male-female power dynamic thing. <laughs> That was just so bad. But it's that Dante flair, you know, the humor that he has. Uh, It's like Grogan tells the lead woman that they need a distraction to escape the military tent. Oh, gosh, I forgot about that. And she says, how? And he's like, I don't know. Come on to them. She says, what if he's gay? And he's like, then I'll do it. (laughs) She flashes him. She's like, it's a bird. It's a plane. And then flashes him to get his attention. And then Grogan comes up behind him and hits him on the head or something and pulls him down. There was that. That was ridiculous. And then they get arrested and put in in jail. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. yes. Pretty suspect as to why they're even in there. But whatever. Uh, She's like, they're in two different cells Mm -hmm. and they're trying to figure out a way. And she's telling the story about how one of her buddies or she interviewed some guy who was in jail and uh, and he how he tried to break out of prison. She was like, did I ever tell you the story about like as if they've known each other forever? <laughs> she kicks the pipe underneath the, the, the trap of the sink, pulls and they apparently have like just removable lids for toilets in, yeah. in prisons, by the way, or jails. And because uh, it's at the sheriff's station, she breaks that on the ground, covers it with a towel that apparently <laughs> is in there, too. And then the one of the police officers officers comes back and she fucking knocks him out with the other piece of the fucking toilet that she broke and i thought she was gonna kill him at first but he's all like passed out on the ground and she's like his keys are on his belt like i don't know what to do and he's like come on now i thought you could get a man's pants off quicker than that (laughs) like what the fuck (laughs) <laughs> I I still was blown away that they bothered to take his pants off. You can't tell me they couldn't have just ripped his belt loop or something. That's what I and was not thinking. Had the pants. And I mean, but that was for the joke. They had yeah, to do it for yeah, the joke. It worked for the joke. And you, you forgot the my favorite part of the flashing the guy scene was what she actually says: "It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Scissor Man." And I have no idea who the fuck or why the fuck Scissor Man is what she blurted out. Oh, probably because they couldn't say Superman. Probably that would make sense. They're like, well, we already fucked over Jaws. Maybe we shouldn't do Superman. Too. And then they, then they cut to breasts that are so clearly a body double. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, because it's like a close up. Huh? Yeah, it's a close up. You see nothing. You don't see her head or anything. And it, I would, I would bet a million bucks that there's no way it was the, it, the actress. I immediately think of the girl's perspective and like her going, "Well, couldn't you have picked better breasts?" <laughs> <laughs> Like, Jesus, that's not mine. Everybody's going to think they're mine. Uh, anyway, 
Do you have one more scene? So my other favorite scene was when the evil colonel finally um, is getting attacked and he's on that boat with all those people that has an 18-person maximum. They they make sure that you can see the sign. This is how many people could fit on the boat. And all these revelers are trying to gr- get up because they're getting eaten by piranhas. And he's just kicking people off the boat left and right, <laughs> screaming. And then, of course, he finally falls in. And then in another homage Jaws fashion, we play back to that famous scene in Jaws where the guy's leg sinks down to the bottom. You just see his kind of mildly chewed up uh, colonel's cap floating to the yeah, bottom of the okay. ocean. I, that 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 definitely tickled. They kind of did that in the remake as well, a little bit. There's like this kid that tries to escape on a boat mm. and starts running over people. Yes, I remember that. From the <laughs> There's remake. a really cool gore scene in that too that I, I like. But yeah, I think that's like kind of a nod to that. Probably that would make sense. When when all the fucking piranha were chewing up all the children and they're trying to save them as as many as they can. Uh, the basically big big scene of the whole fucking yeah. movie. And obviously it's because someone didn't heed the warning because the uh, Dick Miller's character is just like. Mm-hmm. trying to turn a blind eye to the situation, which I don't understand. Like, if you're having this big thing and there's all these, like, parties and stuff going on, why are you just letting people... I, to be honest, I was at an absolute loss as to what the, we'll call them bad guys, what their what their end game was here. Because it didn't he, make he a lot... He said he was an investor. Yeah, but... A, a silent partner or some shit. They were kind of playing the whole we're not going to shut the beaches down from Jaws bit. But that made sense in Jaws because realistically sharks don't eat people all that often in this movie we we have the military come in they throw a carcass in the water and see it get chewed up everyone's on the same page everyone knows exactly what is going yeah, on like you're obviously you should get them out of the water just in case because it's obviously going to be the cat's going to be out of the bag yeah if everybody dies you fucking idiot and it also didn't seem like people being in the water was all that necessary to what they were doing <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of true, too. There was the one thing when all the shit hits the fan and I guess Dick Miller's character, the guy that that's running the, the beach area, whatever. Yeah. He's on the phone or something like that. And he's like, sir, the piranhas, the piranhas. He's like, what about the goddamn piranhas? He's like, uh, they're eating the guests, sir. <laughs> So great. Yeah, the the, the oh. stone-facedness of that, like you told him we run out of ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> it's so great, because like, like the whole time, yeah, I don't know. I love that fucking line. They even put it in the, the remake of the 90s uh, we'll talk about here a little later. Ooh. So they that one's in there, but it's not delivered as well as this one. I still think, for my money, my favorite line of the movie was right in the beginning when Susie, which is of course is our our main character's little girl, is telling that she's afraid to go in the water. The counselor comes to her and she says, "There's nothing to be afraid of. There's just little fish in there. They eat plants. They have no interest in little girls' fingers and toes." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, and then the yeah the counselor didn't he say something like he's like fish eat we eat fish fish don't eat people yeah <laughs> Steve. It's like pre whatever <laughs> foreshadowing. But I I spent most of the movie waiting for that asshole to get eaten because he was clearly outside of just the bad guys, the dickiest character of the lot. But then they actually have him redeem himself at the end, and he's right. trying to save kids. He's the kind of guy you'd picture would have been shoving kids in to get him out of the way. But which, by the way, he's one of the only people that are in the water as long as he is and not getting completely devoured yeah for some odd reason i don't know why and probably saved more people as far as just in the water than anybody else except for of course our our hero at the end right (laughs) well guys i i think we've uh talked about that one enough i i think we're gonna jump into part two the spawning uh which uh nick did the work on here so you want to tell him all about it nick 
So Piranha 2, The Spawning, is from 1982, and it is, of course, a direct sequel to Joe Dante's Piranha. Probably the most famous thing about it is it was the directorial debut of a little man named James Cameron. So that is where uh, he got his famous start. <laughs> it essentially replays the story of the original Piranha, only with the volume turned up a bit. This time we have more uh, military-created piranhas that have somehow gotten out and are infesting a small beachside town on the weekend that they are holding a fish fry celebration that they call the spawning which happens when a large group of small little fish wash up onto the beach for their spawning and i guess they just go out there and bash them and fry them up it's kind of fucked up but i've heard of something like that yeah i I kept asking myself how does this happen every year because it seems like if you kill them all while they're spawning you're not going to have a spawning next year. right like how are they fucking breeding but i guess it's only one portion of the beach that that's what i had to think but yeah yeah, it all also, it just struck me as mean, but maybe that's just me being a vegetarian. <laughs> like to the turtles when they come to shore to have to mate. Oh yeah, you see the crabs killing them, and they're stuff. all smacking the turtles or something. Like, oh. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, is it the crabs? I thought it was turtles. Oh uh, well, no, no, I was thinking of. I, I remember when I was a kid, I would see videos of the sea turtles who, when they would they would lay the five million eggs in the sea, and they would all break out, and they would be on the beach, and they would have to run for the ocean, and there were crabs that would just attack and eat the baby turtles. Oh my god. <laughs> So that's what I was thinking. By the way, this is no Titanic. No. By the way. No, no. <laughs> Speaking Which, of James Cameron. Yeah, and, and we'll get into that because there are some fun notes there. Um, so James, this is James Cameron's credited directorial debut, and he is credited as being the sole director. But realistically, he only directed a portion of the film. We're not sure exactly how much because, of course, they don't say, I did this, you did that. But, uh, yeah, he was apparently fired from the film after just two weeks. Right. And uh, stories of that firing vary a bit. Um, so the movie was co-written by uh, director James Cameron and um, producer slash co-director Avidio G. Asinaitis. Um He was known, Asinaitis, of course, uh, as a big producer and director in Italy. He uh, directed the movie Tentacles, Beyond the Door, and Madhouse, as well as a slew of other things. Madhouse, nice. Yep, and as well as a slew of other things that were not horror-related. From a production standpoint, he produced the giallo Who Saw Her Die, which is one of the more uh, critically acclaimed giallos, and the cheesy 80s horror films The Curse and The Curse to the Bite, Uh. as well as American Ninjas 4 and 5, and oddly enough an episode of the wonderful world of disney so (laughs) it is uh fun to see how how things cross that's funny james cameron of course uh went on from this film immediately afterwards to direct the terminator aliens the abyss titanic and now it looks like uh, avatar films from here off into eternity he has four different Avatar films listed in some form of production on IMDb. Yeah, that's crazy, That like how connected all these things are. Yeah. You never really think about it when you just watch the movies, but then when you start doing research and seeing a lot of similarities yeah. and, and like how they all like work together in some weird way, it's a lot less people than you think. Yeah, you do get the impression that it's a small world. Yeah. From a cast perspective, um, our main characters are played by... Trisha O'Neill, she is Annie. She is an actress who's most known for television films, though if you go to her IMDb, her very first film is a little picture called The Legend of uh, N-Word Charlie. We'll just leave it at that. Oh, wow. Jesus. When I pulled up her IMDb, I just turned my laptop over and put it towards my wife and said, just look at this. (laughs) 
Yeah, goes, a, it was a different time, I guess. <laughs> different era. Oh my God. A lot of TV work for her, um, including episodes of Columbo, Serpico, Hawaii Five O, Murder, She Wrote, Charlie's Angels, Airwolf, MacGyver, LA Law, Dallas, Star Trek, The Next Generation, Babylon 5. So essentially every show from the 80s, it seemed. And she did have a role in Titanic, one of the only other film roles. But I can't imagine things between her and Cameron went too well because she's credited as playing woman <laughs> uh by the way there's another murder she wrote connect oh yeah yeah <laughs> so uh yeah I, I think that's literally the smallest bone cameron could have thrown her yeah uh steve marachuk played tyler once again um he is another mostly tv actress who didn't actor who didn't do a whole lot and you can tell when you look him up on the imdb it says he is known for piranha 2 which is never a good sign never uh, a good sign he was um in a film called the eyes of laura mars though that has a bit of a cult following so that's a, a horror connection there Ricky Golden plays Chris the Lifeguard. He was in Mirror, Mirror and the Blob remake, so a couple of fun 80s horror movies. And then a large slew of TV work, including St. Elsewhere, Baywatch, Deadly Nightmares, MacGyver Again, 21 Jump Street, Alf, and most recently, Jessica Jones. 21 Jump Street! (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Oh, God. It popped in my head. (laughs) I suddenly am in junior high again. (laughs) And... Ansel Gluden uh, plays Gabby. Um, he is our main character's sort. He is our, our main character's sort of best friend. He only did a couple of TV movies, including Return to Treasure Island, Passion of Paradise, and he was most recently in a movie called Undue Influence. And then, of course, we've got Lance Henriksen who plays Steve, <laughs> and he is credited in the opening credits as Lance Henriksen as Steve. <laughs> Police Chief Steve. Yeah, no, no, no. In the opening credits, he's just credited as Steve. That's weird. <laughs> I don't know why. And they even put his name in a little box. Was that one of his earliest? Uh, I know he'd done other stuff. It but. is definitely one of his earliest things. He's also in a TV show called Bad Cats, and I couldn't find anything else on him, so I don't think he's done much else. Wait, Lance Henriksen? I was kidding. <laughs> I was like, wait, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> Lance Hendrickson, of course, we all know from as Bishop from the Alien right. series. As one of uh, the more iconic uh, scenes in the entire franchise. As Ed Harley from yeah. Pumpkinhead. Yeah. And just a million movies. When you go to his IMDb page, he had, I think it was 15 films in pre-production, post-production, or announced. So uh, while Lance Hendrickson, unfortunately, has not been in a lot of good material lately, he is definitely a working actor. So Fuck yeah. He was just at the convention we were at for the Mad Monster. Oh, really? Yeah. Pretty cool. And then... Um, what is probably outside of, of course, James Cameron's involvement, the most important aspect here for horror fans is special effects by Gianetto De Rossi, who is um, a famous Italian special effects artist. And this is funny because I didn't know what to expect from this film. I'd never seen it. I'd only heard of it. I was not expecting it to be an Italian film. Right. So uh, when I saw his name pop up, I immediately got intrigued. Um, He, of course, is probably most famous for doing the makeup effects in Lucio Fulci's Zombie and House by the Cemetery. So Dr. Freudstein. He even did uh, makeup effects for Once Upon a Time in the West back in the 60s. Okay. He did makeup for Lucio Fulci's I, Maniaki, which was a... uh, 
a uh, goofy 60s sex comedy he made. Okay. And uh, more recently, for us gorehounds out there, and another odd connection is he did the special effects for Alexander Aha's first film, High Tension. And if uh, anyone has seen that, you remember that is a gory-ass movie. Yeah, it is. That was, uh, yeah, the whole neck-cutting scene and shit like that was really brutal in oh, that movie. Oh, yeah. When I think of that film, I always remember the scene where he takes that dude's head off with the piano in the yeah. stairwell. <laughs> it's pretty ridiculous there. So what were your thoughts on this one, Alex? Well, I think this one is uh, definitely the 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 gorier one of the two. Oh, definitely. It ups the fish, the science, the blood, the effects, obviously, and the breast. <laughs> it, much like the first one, the overall tone's pretty fun. You know, they get it pretty flirty with it yeah. in a lot of different ways, not just sexually, but yes, definitely sexually. Uh, they got a lot of those bad jokes tossed in like they did kind of in the first one, only a oh, little yeah. bit worse. Um, the male-female power dynamic is in there as well um, with... Lance and uh, her boyfriends uh, in the movie. Uh, they also have, you know, owners ignoring safety as well. Yeah. But, you know, this time the motherfuckers fly. <laughs> so it's definitely a step up in the science direction. If you thought the first was a little far fetched, well, put fucking wings on the motherfuckers and yep. you're, you're definitely going to have a weird combination. Uh, it makes the, the people that were running, because uh, in the first movie, there's a lot of people running from the fish on <laughs> land, and I thought that was really funny. I forgot to mention that, but um, it makes them seem what, somewhat rational, but you know, like I said, fucking science, am I right? So, goddamn fucking science. <laughs> first they came for our fish, now they're coming for our goddamn climate. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just when you thought it was safe to go back anywhere. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to throw that in there. Uh, you know, the the truth is, though, that the idea of making them fly because man fucks with shit kind of makes sense. Obviously, it, it holds, a, you know, it, it takes the tone of what Dante really wanted with that film uh, and, and takes it a step further, which, you know, is great for horror's sake, you know, because it just makes it fun and yeah. silly and like we've never seen flying fish before so uh that's kind of cool too um you know they they evolved by splicing genes to adapt but part of me kind of wonders if they did this because they were just trying to have more gore and they had to figure out a way to do it without doing it under the water do you know what i mean yeah well there actually is some 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 fun trivia on that very note okay well don't spoil it just yet yeah. but uh, I feel like that, you know, this one definitely ups the gore, which I think is good either way. So regardless, it's a fucking treat either way. So watching those suckers fly was pretty funny. Oh, it was fabulous. It's pretty ridiculous. And, and some of the deaths in that scene, one scene in particular, just ridiculous. Uh, uh, it just, <laughs> there's like a dance that's meant to be had when people die. And it was not had perfectly in some scenes in this, but it's still funny and interesting and fun either way. So, but, um, you got a younger Lance Henriksen in this movie, so which was, for me, nice to see him in a movie not fighting aliens or, you know, weird pumpkin demons. Um, it's slightly better in some departments, like gore, but both of these movies feel pretty much about the same. I mean, if you like the first, you're probably going to like the second. You know, it made me want to binge all those movies, like I said, so I watched the, the remake with AHA. Yeah. Uh, anyway, and I, to be honest, I found a newfound appreciation for the movie uh, <laughs> that I didn't before, only specifically tied to the gore uh, yeah. in the film, which I thought was fun. And some of the jokes that they had in it were kind of funny, too. Yeah, that's pretty much all I got to say. Um, 
I think if you like the first one, you're going to like the second one. And it's, you know, your typical traditional second movie uh, with, like we were talking about before, uh, it kind of does more like Jaws in this movie than the first one did that supposedly ripped off Jaws. Yeah, I feel this one, at least as far as the beats of the film, owes a much greater debt to Jaws than the Joe Dante one did. And this one, I felt, in a lot of ways, it's more fun than the original, but tonally, it's all over the place. Yeah, it is a little weird. Because oftentimes, comedic horror films can have really over-the-top gore, and oftentimes it plays into the comedy, but the gore in those films tends to feel different, and the violence tends to feel different and to feel more lighthearted. And this movie was very lighthearted in a lot of times, but having Gianetta De Rossi's unbelievably graphic and realistic gore effect, yeah. it felt that the deaths were darker than the rest of the film in a way that, I don't know, it struck me as odd. Well, the, the acting in particular, some of the people dying were was the part I had problem with. The, the facts yeah. are fine. <laughs> it's just that one guy I, that was, there was a scene where a guy, and I won't say what it is, but there was a scene where there's a guy and he tries to uh, fight off these things. Uh, <laughs> and I think that uh, it's pretty funny in a way because his attempts are pretty stupid and it's like kind of pointless. <laughs> so it kind of sucks. There are some people who are just waiting to die in this film. <laughs> or well aware that that is the outcome. Um, but yeah, from an acting standpoint, uh, oh, I love seeing Lance Henriksen in anything. Sure, and he def- was the best actor in it, I oh, would say. Oh, yeah, and he was also one of the few, I think, who wasn't overdubbed, um, because I got the impression that, like most Italian films of that era, they probably dubbed most of the actors' voices after the fact. Right, okay. Like, right in the beginning, in the very opening scene, um, when we've got the couple who are on the boat, and it starts out with a couple who are going to have sex on a boat, but they decide that the boat is too constricting, so <laughs> they're gonna bone in the water then oh my god that's when i knew right there it was an italian film (laughs) because their lips weren't sinking and and the ridiculousness of that whole thing i was like do people why like yes people fuck in the water okay and pools (laughs) and shit like that but there's a whole new level when you're on the bottom of a fucking shipwreck yeah (laughs) this was this was scuba boning i i knew it was italian right off the get because the uh the young man in the scene's voice the voice actor voicing him is the same voice actor who voiced no, go ahead. Who voices Brett Halsey in all of the Lucio Fulci films? Yes, they that's did a, I recognized it too. And as soon as he started talking, it was funny to me because when I was young and watching these films, I didn't really understand. I didn't know that they filmed Italian films silent and that every voice you heard was not the real voice. So for a long time, I thought that was Brett Halsey's voice. <laughs> and it wasn't until I started hearing it, and then I heard that same voice actor um, voices Mikel Suave in. Um, absurd the joe diamato film yeah for a okay. very brief scene he's in so yeah that i'm i'm fully convinced that there's perhaps maybe 12 voice actors in all of italy <laughs> and that they voice everyone it's probably because they trust them enough to not to fuck it up there's a scene with um when tyler is getting out of the water at one point and they're talking about the fish and he offhandedly says oh they scared the shit out of me and they clearly had to adr that scene in and they used that voice actor to adr it in so he suddenly has that guy's voice for one second and then goes back to the main voice they're using for that actor. Yeah. yeah. It is really good. Kind of interesting to think about how some of these voice over actors, you do start to remember their voices and, and be able to like even name them even because yeah. you know that voice, you know? 
If if you're a Euro horror fan, you you definitely come to know the voices as well as the faces, and they don't always line up. <laughs> so you can have a better voice performance than a physical performance in a film. Well, especially when you see those actors again, and they have a different voice the next time, <laughs> then you're like, wait, that doesn't make sense. Anyway. And I have decided that <laughs> I want to be a, a lake sheriff. <laughs> because that just looks like the life. Fuck no, man. They're always in fucking trouble, like man. Like nobody cares about what they do. I think we were just seeing the worst day of his career. Because <laughs> early in the film, he's just jets not jet skiing. He's just power boating around with his shirt open, all these gals throwing themselves at him. He's yelling at his kid. It looks like a good life. <laughs> when I picture my cubicle and then I imagine just me with my shirt open on the open lake, I, I think I should be a, a sheriff. <laughs> Well, now we're going to jump into some of the trivia for this, guys. So we'll go ahead and do that right now. So you're this is going to be spoilerific somewhat. So And then we'll jump into our spoilers and uh, also some of our scenes. So Excellent. So this movie came about in a bit of an odd way. Um, Roger Corman, of course, uh, had an immediate success on his hands with the original Piranha. But unfortunately, when he had licensed it, he did not have the rights to make a sequel. Warner Brothers did. I don't know what legal wrangling led to that. But Corman was essentially out. And Warner Brothers had recently sued producer Avidio Asinaitis um, because he made a movie called Beyond the Door. And Beyond the Door was uh, essentially an Exorcist ripoff. Right. And I love that movie. It's on Ronin Films. I was going to buy it literally <laughs> last night. Warner Brothers sued him and somehow they settled out of court. And the settlement they came to was that he was not going to make a sequel to Beyond the Door, which he had originally planned to do. And he was essentially roped into producing three films for Warner Brothers as part of this agreement. I would love to get sued and have it land me a job, but uh, I guess things work different in film land. And they immediately uh, came to an agreement that he was going to produce Piranha 2. But he said, I'll only do it if I can essentially make the movie I want to make. And Warner Brothers said, sure, make it however you want to make it, but they have to fly. And that was Warner Brothers' one point, is that as well, no matter what happened in the movie, they wanted some fucking flying fish. So that is how we ended up with the flying fish, which was something apparently that James Cameron did not like, but uh, didn't have much choice in the matter. I got to mention, like the fact that they fly in this movie reminds me of kind of the turn that Tremors took a little bit. Oh, oh wow. I didn't even thought about that, but totally. Yeah, like it feels a little abrupt, although they had two movies and then it was like now they were walking on land or something in the third one, right? Yeah, and they called them ass blasters, which is the worst thing you can do if you ever, <laughs> ever want someone to take your film seriously again. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, originally, they had hired a director named Miller Drake to make uh, Piranha 2, and it sounds like his version of Piranha 2 was going to be a far superior one. He actually wanted to draw a lot of the elements of the original Piranha in. He wanted to bring Kevin McCarthy back. Um, even though he had died in the first film, he was just going to have him chewed up. And he also wanted to bring Barbara Steele back and essentially have the Kevin McCarthy, Dr. Hoke character create these even more super fish as a form of revenge for what had happened. And he had written a scene where he was going to kill Barbara Steele by shoving her face through a fish tank. And I wish that would have happened. But unfortunately, the producer and the director did not see eye to eye. And the producer ended up firing him before they even started filming. And and making everyone go back to the drawing board for the script. 
Now, hmm. the story of how James Cameron came into this is he was another character who was toiling away in Roger Corman's world. He had been doing second unit direction for the movie Galaxy of Terror. Love that movie. And this was uh, apparently his first um, really second unit directing job, his first time behind the wheel. Anyone who's read anything about James Cameron knows that all he's ever wanted to do is be a filmmaker. And apparently the producers were on set that day that he was doing his second unit stuff, and he was tasked with shooting a scene where worms are eating some sort of severed arm. Mm. Yeah, I remember that too, yeah. And he couldn't get the worms. That's, uh, what's his name? Um, Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, Sid Haig is the arm. That oh, is really? getting the, the the worms. I I've, love that movie. I've actually why. never seen Galaxy of you, Terror. You, dude, if you like aliens, uh, like going to another planet, mm-hmm. uh, seeing Robert England, uh, Robert England's in it. Yes. All right. Well, uh, now I have to see that movie. He does. A, he has a really cool scene, and so does Sid Haig. Uh, but yeah, I could get into tons <laughs> of stories about that. That's one of those movies I love. But anyway, uh, so so the arm had maggots on it, and they, that's that's the thing I know too is that that scene was a big problem in the making of that movie. Yeah, yeah. So apparently Cameron couldn't get the maggots to move. They just laid there and looked like rice. And the producers were on set that day, and he was of the opinion that he was not going to fail in front of the producers. This was his chance. He was going to make it work. So he grabbed one of the uh, grips or something and had them rig a live electrical wire into the fake arm and told him to plug it in as soon as he yelled action. So, of course, he yells action. The guy plugs the, uh, the wire in. The electrified maggots go bananas, and the shot looks fantastic. And the producers who were on set were really impressed. Now, the the producer, Prana 2, argues this is not exactly how James Cameron got the job. But the story is that the producers saw that scene, saw Cameron work it out, and thought, if he can make maggots work like that, imagine what he could do with people. And yeah, anyone a who, execution, get them going. And anyone who's ever read about the ways that James Cameron treats his casts. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of a lot of the big actors do put their actors through the ringer to get the quality that they dis- that they want uh, for better or worse. So, um, so they bring on James Cameron, and he put the script together alongside with the producer, and things seem to go pretty well at first. Um, from the stories that actors on set have told, everyone right off the bat realized that Cameron was an amazing talent, right. and he was an, a fantastic director, but he's also James Cameron, and apparently within two weeks of shooting, he'd already gone way over budget on the film, and um, Asantis uh, fired him. And right. told him, I think you're a talented kid, but you're inexperienced. Make two or three more films, and then we will talk. Um, and when asked years later about this, because, of course, firing James Cameron is something that you get asked about a lot. Right. Um, asked for examples of how he'd wasted money. I guess um, from the story he tells, the, sto- the uh, straw that broke the camel's back is Cameron had missed a close-up shot of an actress on whatever day they were filming. So decided he was going to catch that shot the next day. And um, took both the actress and the entire film crew onto a boat and spent the entire day chasing a cloud formation across this river or whatever <laughs> to try and replicate the lighting that had happened the previous day. And the producer was, of course, this is Piranha 2. You need to cut the shit. This is not the way Cameron tells the story, though. Cameron uh, says that he was, uh, as we mentioned before, this movie ups the breast ante rather significantly. Yeah. And Cameron claims that the producer who took over as director, Cameron's credit as director, but the producer directed the rest of the film. He claims that the, the producer fired him right when they were getting ready to start shooting the nude scenes, and he was a pervert, and it was an awful thing to do. That's how Cameron tells the story. <laughs> um, I did a little digging into 
to that, and I think Cameron's probably full of shit because uh, Carol Davis, who is one of the uh, the two young women who lures the young man to give him food and essentially has a bunch of uh, silly silly cheesecake scenes in the film, she was asked about that years later, and she said that the producer was a complete gentleman and there was never anything untoward going on on set. So it's plausible that 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 he that what James Cameron said is very plausible because I can imagine that being in the movies back then especially yeah I could see that you know but in the same respect like yeah I can imagine him chasing a cloud all day too (laughs) (laughs) I I could see both of those things happening yeah I guess um Cameron and the uh, the producer felt bad for having fired Cameron because he did think he was uh, a good director. Right. So he decided to let him assist with the editing of the film. And this is one of those stories that anyone who's read about Piranha 2 has probably seen. So apparently uh, Cameron has denied this, but denied it in the worst possible way you can deny it. Um he was not happy with the amount of creative control he was given over the editing of the film and broke into the production studios after hours and attempted to re-edit the film himself to his own liking. Oh, wow. Um, He was asked about this uh, by a Canadian TV interviewer in the 90s and said, that would have been illegal if I had done that. Of course I didn't. But someone may have broken in and re-edited the film. (laughs) That's how he denied it. And the producer has said that Cameron admitted he did that to him years later. But uh, even though the film turned out to be what sounds like a pretty rough experience for Cameron, he did say that while he was stranded in Rome after he'd been fired and uh, didn't know anyone, didn't have any money, and didn't even speak the language, he got really sick and he was stuck in a hotel in Rome and had a crazy fever nightmarish dream about... um, as he put it, a machine with glowing eyes that walked as a man. Ah. He immediately went back to the States and wrote The Terminator. And then as they say, the rest, of course, is history. So it all works out. It all works out, guys. That's crazy, man. That's fucking crazy. Um, A couple other fun facts about the film. Uh, There's uh, one of my favorite scenes that we'll talk about in favorite scenes takes place in a morgue. um, Yes, that's one of the first ones I wanted to mention. Yeah, Yeah. and uh, that scene was actually filmed in a real morgue with real dead bodies, and the actors were apparently quite upset about that. Oh, my God. Uh, Well, they they can't get any more real than that. Yep. (laughs) That's the way the Italians did it. A lot of those old Italian gothics where you'd see piles of bones were filmed in real catacombs with real bones. Right. Get whatever they could. Making is a lot more expensive, that's for sure. Yeah, both Joe D'Amato and Bruno Mattei were famous for using real catacombs in their films. That's, yeah. Man, yeah, that's some pretty fun trivia right there, dude. <laughs> that, that's I, I I had heard the story about him breaking in, um, and uh, that's why you wanted to do that's two. Why, that's why because I knew that that was a story out there, and I was curious if it was true because I'd only heard it years ago. But yeah, doing my digging, it's it's multiply sourced, so it it apparently happened. That's pretty cool, though. Yeah, it's interesting to always hear like what goes on behind the scenes. You never really know the full truth ever most yeah. times, and t- unless you were like on the set and saw, but you it's everybody just is different perspective and everybody's trying to make a name in the industry so either they're quiet about it or you know it's years later and they finally divulge the truth you know what i mean so that's why it keeps buried because nobody wants to ruin their name yeah and it's funny that the producer said he'd work with him in another two or three films which of course didn't happen and if you look at imdb cameron's next film was the terminator his next film after that was aliens so he'd already left the italian film industry way in his dust by the time he got to his second film (laughs) now there is uh, a lot of spoiler things that we got to talk about here and we you mentioned the morgue thing so i'm going to jump into that right there all right um the, the first thing that caught me like, I mean, to be honest, like, 
Other than the fucking the 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 girl and the guy fucking at the bottom of the ocean, her cutting off his fucking underwear. Oh yeah, that was the first scene I wrote down. I thought I was because as soon as they jumped in the water, I was like, okay, this is the tenor of the film. She's completely naked. He still has speedos on. That seems a bit genderly unfair. <laughs> and then she busts out this Rambo esque knife and cuts his speedos off him under the water yeah, with scuba girl. gear on. Get it, girl. <laughs> That was a little weird for me, but but yeah, I, I immediately was thinking about the mechanics of fucking somebody at the bottom of the ocean, uh, or yeah, the bottom of the ocean of a fucking wreckage, and I'm like, that is the most, I mean, you wouldn't be able to see, first of all, so what the fuck are they doing in the middle of the night in the bottom of the ocean? How are they fucking in the, you know what I mean? Think about that for a second, like. I, get, I, I was so wrapped up in the notion that I can't help but feel that sharks could smell my fuck stink, and I just... <laughs> That seems like that seems like spitting in the eye of God. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> From that point on to this point that I'm about to mention, it's pretty bland. Like the the story was kind of, meh, you know, it definitely feels like an '80s Italian film more than it feels like a James. Cameron oh, 100 percent. Which is not a bad thing because I still enjoyed this movie because of it. But um, the dive, the the main chick, uh, she's a diving coach, and she breaks into the morgue with her new student who uh, is trying to hit on her for. There's other reasons, obviously, because yeah. he's he's trying to figure out why these where these eggs landed, the piranha eggs, and so he's trying to like you know like he's got two missions to have sex and fucking figure out how to stop piranhas, apparently. Yeah. But she's taking pictures of this other Eden student, the student that she took out with this other student that she's hanging out with, got eaten in the bottom of the same wreckage where these people disappeared that were fucking at the bottom of the ocean. So she takes pictures of this student whose body's like torn and you could see like visible pieces chewed out, which was really cool. Oh, bones, ligaments, it's real. Right, like gore galore. And the funny thing to me, aside from that moment, is that and this is just me pointing it out before the scene that you're probably going to mention, <laughs> is that she takes the pictures, right, on an old-ass camera, like a nice one, but an old-ass camera, and the same night she has slides that she's looking at with the same student in the same time frame on the wall of the fucking, of her apartment with him. Like, I'm thinking to myself, did they even have one-hour photo back then? <laughs> I don't think they did. <laughs> I didn't even make that connection. <laughs> I, oh, I, I was thinking at first the way the scene played out because they kind of used that scene to act as connective tissue to the original film because she of course talks about what had happened in the first movie right and i thought she was showing him pictures of scenes from the original film it took me a minute to realize that she was showing him what they'd just done right that's what i i was so confused but i mean it was really just a plot yeah, they, they, know, had to, they had to move it along. They were just trying to get it along, and maybe there was a scene that they... they, they <laughs> but they say it's the same night. He's like, I had a really good night with you. Oh, uh, yeah, the whole movie takes place over the course of maybe two days. Then do you want to, you know, stay and fuck? <laughs> <laughs> of course. The gender dynamics don't work nearly as well in this film as they did in the first one. It's clear that it was not directed by someone with as much... Uh, uh, shall we say progressive compassion to yeah. to try and flip the script? This movie is a straight up Italian 
Yeah. Right, yeah. It, it, that was not paid attention to very well. But, I mean, that's pretty much the only spoiler thing I have. I, most of my scenes are pretty well. Did you catch right towards the beginning when our main, uh, the, the diving instructor's son, who looks way too old to be her son, um, is talking to her at home, and he's like, wouldn't I do well with a good father figure around here? Yeah, that is and so weird. It really sounded like he's telling his mom to go out and get some. <laughs> and, he's, and he's saying it in a really, like, Lascivious manner, like it's not, it, it's not, not subtle. He's yeah. like, "Mom, get out, go play around." I want a new dad, and he's like sixteen. Yeah, <laughs> and Lance Hendrickson's clearly in his life, right? Yeah, but uh, yeah, the morgue scene—we got to talk about that. That oh, was the man. first um, real cue that fish don't just live in water anymore. No, they apparently live in your body because. <laughs> For hours and yeah, yeah. I don't know if it was supposed to be breathing the blood in there, but yeah, it had been at least 10 hours that that fish had been hanging out in that dude's belly. (laughs) It was pretty, uh, it was pretty silly. Like, you see the little rubbery fish come out of the body organ, and and it's like kind of nuzzling its way out through the organs, and then it just leaps onto the fucking morgue attendant's fucking neck, and I, I don't know if she's a nurse or, I don't know what she was. I guess She looked like she was wearing nurse-ish clothes. Yeah, she was, and she, like, chased out the um, the diving instructor and the student yeah. uh, from the place after she took pictures, and then died, and then, so... Th- the weird parallel that they're trying to make in this movie, which made no sense, is like Lance Henriksen's the sheriff. She's his ex-wife or his current wife that they're in separation. Yeah, they're still married. Yeah, they're still in separation or something like that. And uh, every time someone dies, she's attached to it somehow. And so she's getting embroiled in this like fucking cover up. And so they think that she's killing it. And he keeps saying that over and over. He's like, I'm the fucking sheriff and you're everywhere that the fucking people are dying. And I'm like, yeah, like it would be out of your hands at this point. <laughs> yeah. If I was Lance, I'd be a little, I'd be a little saucy too. Um, in that morgue scene, one thing that I thought it was funny, um, as soon as I saw the, cause I could tell something was going to happen. Right. And as soon as I saw the fish in there, it looked like it was paying homage to the chest bursting scene in the original Alien. Right. And that, of course, is funny because, you know, Cameron went on to direct Aliens. and I That was the inspiration. I'm really yeah. curious if he was a huge Alien fan and was trying to pay homage. Of course, we don't know if he directed that scene or not, though, because we don't know who directed what. That's true. With the exception of the big attack at the end, they did say that that was directed by the producer. He fired him before that. Okay. All right. I realized they had to get the fish out of there because otherwise the gig would have been up right away as soon as they found the murder fish with the body. But uh, in this scene, this fish jumps out of a dead body, rips this poor woman's throat out. And it's quite clear. And this is one of the things that if you go do watch this movie, you need to know every fish attack scene. You can see the stick. Yeah, you could see the stick attached to the fish, just bashing this poor woman in the throat. But then the fish, because, of course, they fly, decides to fly the coop. And someone clearly rockets this fish out a window at like Mach 10. <laughs> it just bursts through a window and flies into the night with a squeal. <laughs> I, I, I There's a lot of weird shit in this that I thought was a little comical. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's pretty classic Italian like uh, like American. 
Yeah, because it definitely borrowed a lot and it had a feel of an American film in some ways, but you could tell that it was, you know, Italian dubbing, Italian, you know, cinematographer, special effects artist. Uh, but yeah, it had so many of those great Italian filmisms uh, when one of the dive students is giving our heroine shit because he doesn't like the fact they're not going to go into the shipwreck. Tyler, the, the student who's also a scientist, turns to him and goes, hey, did you go to asshole school or something? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and the di- dynamic between Lance Henriksen and him are also pretty. Yeah, they were they were big dicks bumping up against each other the whole time. Yeah, like I don't. I guess they were separated or whatever. And then you know, it's one of those stories where they always end up meeting or the 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 ex and her get back together over some like common. Uh, you know, I don't know if they got back together, but they definitely understood each other when their son was like at risk. Uh, it implied life would be better for them after she survived at the end. Right. Oh, and that guy dies anyway, pretty much. Spoiler alert. But. Yeah. <laughs> he's a dick. No yeah, one, he's like, no one will miss him. He's stuck in that, that venting or whatever that he got stuck in in the boat or whatever. And then fucking gets shredded. I love because you really are expecting her to try and save him the whole time. And then you see her just look and. She obviously she's underwater. She's got a mask on. You can't really see her face, but her whole body language just goes "fuck it, see ya." Right. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, she's like, "fuck it." I mean, whatever. Like, he was a nice lay. See ya. And and she escapes because Lance Henriksen is on a speedboat and he's trying to bust out. And she finds that he somehow left the anchor down, so she grabs onto it. And usually in a scene like that, it would seem like they would be careful, but when she grabs onto the anchor and he takes off, you could tell that they're hauling because I. Saw saw her leg meat just go <laughs> as that boat went ripping across the water. <laughs> that scene was funny. One of the scenes I want to bring up before we get too far into that, but there was also that scene where they were like, we want fish. Yes. We want fish when they're trying to crack the fucking fish to come on the shore. And it's like, the, and then all of a sudden that's when the chaos happens. Maybe you can kick it off with that. Yeah. That, that scene actually, the whole time that was playing, I kept picturing that old episode of the Simpsons when they were trying to whack the snakes. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like that, huh? Yeah, the We Want Fish scene was funny, and that's definitely intended to be the set piece. I felt like that scene was incredible because, I mean, the gore scenes were, were off the chain, but it was so short. It I was, was. I was expecting this big blowout, and suddenly we've got We Want Fish, and then fish start flying out of the water and munching mofos left and right, and then it's just no more fish and dead people everywhere yeah. within, within seconds. So Yeah, it's like they get they, they didn't have the budget probably, so they were like, fuck it. I, I imagine that's what it was. Um, such a buildup for such a yeah kind of okay scene. There's st- I mean, I enjoyed it because it was the best. You know, you get to see a lot of fucking gore at that yeah. point. I, from, a, from a pure gore standpoint, I was really impressed with the scene when um, Gabby, who is... Uh, sort of Lance Hendrickson's buddy. They have that weird conversation right in the beginning when Lance comes in hot because he's blowing shit up with dynamite. Uh, when his son is killed, that that is brutal because you've got this, this young boy who's probably 12 or 13, and he gets pulled into, I'm not sure if it's a fish tank or what it is, but you see the fish just tear him apart. Wait, Lance Hendrickson's son? No, no, no. Lance Hendrickson is friends with Gabby, who's the, the, the muscular black guy with the beard. Oh, yes, that. And okay, his, yeah, his yeah, young yeah. son is eaten. Sorry, I got confused. Yeah. yeah, you're talking about what led up to the beach scene where he. Yeah, yeah. yeah this this predates the beach scene, um, and this is the best 
stick scene of the film because this kid gets pulled into the water and you've got fish attacking him from the left and fish attacking him from the right and they make no attempt to hide the fact that there are poles just swatting this poor kid in the face <laughs> and then he gets pulled backwards into the water and he has what looks like a bungee cord attached to his shirt that just yanks him down yeah dude and it's really hokey and then they cut to something else and then they cut back to his dad finding him which actually is a pretty sad scene because right. they, they play it really straight and after this really goofy fish on stick scene he pulls him out of the water and those Giannetta de Rossi effects come up again and his throat is torn down to the spinal column yeah it's pretty and bad it is unbelievably gory and really realistic which once again the weird tonal shifts because that comes right on the heels of one of the silliest scenes in the film yeah which well that you're talking about where the father gets it that well, that father goes out because he's mad at the fish and he wants to blow him up no th- then that that is another silly that's I was pretty stupid like wh- you go out with dynamite and you end up on the ground yeah he didn't make it i was expecting him to i figured he was gonna die but i imagine he would take some with him or something i was picturing uh ving rames and the the aha remake right yeah yeah but yeah. instead he walks like 12 feet one fish comes up and eats him and then he drops dead yeah and it's like such this long period like where it's like it's quiet too i don't think there was any music it was just no. munching on his neck and 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 it was kind of awkward <laughs> it was really awkward because well, they had everyone inside just sort of looking at him out the way i'm like someone go get his ass yeah i know there's like three fish yeah but like get a stick or something get us maybe grab the stick from the fish like i don't know <laughs> yeah i don't know that part really made me fucking uh the, when he was leeching it was leeching on the the meat and uh they're dropping like sacks of meat on the ground before that though and then he goes outside to fucking with dynamite and never does anything with it or no. it, i don't even know why it didn't make sense i mean yeah he was blowing up fish out of the water earlier in the movie with dynamite but it was like what were you gonna do with flying fish I'm not sure. I With think, dynamite. Like, what are you going to do? I think that how I read the dynamite was it was an implication that he knew whatever happened, he wasn't coming back. Because oh. to fight something with dynamite means that you're giving your life to take that life. Okay, so they just didn't develop it well enough to make that connection, I guess. Yeah, that's how I read it anyways. <laughs> that's what it seems like anyway. Um do you have another scene that you want to talk about? You want to mention after that? Uh, yeah, non-gore scene, um, but one of the most fun in the film. Did Lance have to crash the helicopter? Dude, <laughs> I'm saying, like, for real. I'm like, Bishop, what are you doing? It's going to take your kid out. Yeah, like, I don't, I mean, I guess, yeah. I mean, he had to rush because he knew that there was going to be some sort of explosion. Yeah, but I mean, he couldn't guess where that thing was going to, he just abandoned ship, like, right over his kid. <laughs> At first, I was a little thrown off. I was like, wait, Lance just jumped out of the, because he's, he, you know, his, to save his separated wife and her, and the kids or whatever, like, what the fuck? Uh, but he knew that, that they were going to set off charges in the shipwreck underneath, and that they were going to die if he didn't do something. And he also knew that she would grab onto the fucking and, uh, onto the anchor. anchor. Yeah. Which... I, and I got the impression that that wasn't his plan because he seemed to be unaware that she was. I mean, he knew that she was down below, but when he finally decided to take off because he had been, you know, waiting and waiting, it seemed like he had decided that he had to save his son and he had to sacrifice her. And she was just the smart one to grab onto the anchor. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's how I read it. Um, uh, another one of my favorite scenes, and once again, it's not really a scene so much as a shot. Um, right before the big uh, "We want fish foodening" happens, um, 
the uh, the swim instructor is communicating with a guy named Aaron who's on the beach walking around and she talks to Aaron Aaron's like all cool here and then when she tries to talk to him again he's gone and you see him crawling up the beach and half of his skull had been chewed away <laughs> and you saw head skull deep into this it was one of the most incredible makeup jobs is, I'd ever seen good. and remember. then he just from off camera just gets back into the ocean like the ocean had sucked him back <laughs> Goddamn piranhas, flying or otherwise, Jesus Christ. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have much more than that to say. I mean, this is the the sillier of the two, probably, um, but it's it's like both of them are silly. Yeah. So it's like I I, I really can't put piranha, the first piranha in the in the same category as Jaws um, as an overall film. Oh like, yeah, no, definitely. It, these not. are both silly films to me, so it's really hard for me to pick one or the other. What would you say, like, and why? Um, I would absolutely pick the original Piranha over Piranha Two. Okay. Um, because I felt that it was a far better made film. Okay. I felt like the story made much more sense. The acting, of course, was far superior. I liked the characters in the first film. Um, I just felt that overall, it's it's an engaging piece of work, and there's a reason that. The first film has survived. If James Cameron hadn't directed the second one, it would be a forgotten Italian splatter film. Right. Okay. Um, but the first one is a classic for a reason. It, it definitely overcame its budgetary constraints in a way that most even Corman films of that era didn't. And the second one, the second one is a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun, but that's all it is. It's a lot of fun while not being a good movie. I think it's a nice uh, pairing, you know, like the two. Uh, I think... If you're going to watch the first one, you might as well watch the second one, too. Absolutely. I, I like the gore in the second one. Definitely. I feel like that was... If, if they would have had that same amount of gore in the first one... Yeah. ...that I would have been so on board with the first one, like, 100%, like, it would have been, like, one of my favorite movies ever. Absolutely. I still... It's not a bad movie. Neither of them are... Like, wow, the second one's a little questionably good. <laughs> uh, but... I don't know. Yeah, I think it's hard for me. But yeah, definitely the first one is probably the better movie. But the second one has things in it that I really like. Yeah. Well, that being said, the first film, I think, is a far superior film. The print of part two that was for rent on Amazon was atrocious. Mm -hmm. And I'm really tempted to buy. Apparently, Shout Factory is a Blu-ray of it. And I'm really tempted to buy that Blu-ray just to see those Gianetta uh, those DeRossi effects oh, you must in Blu-ray. You know what? I actually saw the Blu-ray version. Oh, no. See, there was two different versions on there. I must have rented the shitty one. Yeah. Because <laughs> I... mine looked like a VHS copy. No. It was all cloudy and no, yeah, there was a Blu-ray copy of the... Uh, oh, no. There was yeah. an HD copy, yeah. I did not get that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you saved a buck. Yeah. Oh, well, was that one three ninety nine? Probably, yeah. <laughs> I think so, yeah. But yeah, I think... Like, it just depends what you guys like. I mean, I'm not the biggest, like, fish movie person, like, that you will find, but if a movie's done well enough that I enjoyed it from start to finish, regardless if it's good or bad, if it can make me entertained from start to finish, I think both of these movies accomplish that. But one is definitely the better film. And uh, I honestly, if you like these movies, I highly recommend you watch the AHA remakes, the gore in um, Piranha 3D. Oh, yeah, the gore in that film. Insane. And I don't remember what was in part, the second one, the Double D. Yeah. Uh, but I do remember it being kind of fun and gory. So, I don't know. Take it for what it is. If you like gore, check out the remakes. Might as well. They're definitely worth watching. 
The original prawn has been remade two times, so it did something right. Yeah, <laughs> there is there is a nugget of something good there. It is it is the horror genre as a star is born. Something silly about watching fish just kill people is kind of fun, and it kind of makes me want to watch like I, I watched The Meg recently too. You mm. know what I mean? So I mean, I must have been in the mood for some fishy movies. So. <laughs> But yeah, man, thanks for uh, coming on. I'm, I'm really glad we got to sit down and talk about this. I'm glad you were on board for, uh, joke intended, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, on board for this fucking adventure of these two movies. <laughs> I was really excited when you suggested Piranha 1 and 2, because I'd always meant to see the sequel, and I always loved the original. So. Oh, I figured it'd be silly enough that we could have fun with it, because we watched some pretty fucking silly movies. Yeah. And it had been forever since I was a kid to see any of these. And I I, I don't remember anything of the second one other than they were flying around, but I, I think I might have seen it. I just don't remember anything. So it was nice to go back to something I haven't seen since I was probably like 10 or 12. Yeah. For me, the only thing I could remember about Piranha was the only film I'd ever seen Barbara Steele in color. Yeah. <laughs> I, the only way to describe it is she looks like a hot baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She does have some unique features. It's those <laughs> eyes, too. Oh, definitely. So. But yeah, guys, I hope you enjoyed this week. And uh, have you seen these movies? What do you think of these movies? Uh, be sure to let us know in the comments below and any of our social media or even on the website where this episode is posted every week. Uh, but we, we really do appreciate you guys coming by. Be sure to stick around. Brittany should be back next week. I fucking hope so. We'll see. Uh, it's been a little while. so. Um, but I hope you guys had a great Thanksgiving. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. Have a great night, everyone. Episode.